0: This podcast is presented to you by Pastors Tom and Bonnie DeShall from Celebration Church in Harare, Zimbabwe. For more information, please visit celebrationmen.org. Open your Bibles with me. Uh, I'm going to be talking this morning about a topic that uh, I think is very, very important in this day and this age that we live in. And uh, as I've traveled, as I've uh, come back home to Zimbabwe, I'm, I'm deeply disturbed by by something that uh, I can't address necessarily to the whole nation, but I can definitely address to our congregation. And uh, it's the idea of worldliness, worldliness. And uh, I've entitled the message today, Worldliness, but that God is calling us to holiness. And so when we look at the topic of worldliness, uh, the idea that the world has gotten into the church, Uh, frustrates me a little bit, and uh, I'm preaching this not at you, not only to you, but I'm preaching it to myself, is that I think there's a call to holiness that God's calling us to. So I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to the uh, First John, the the book of First John, and I'd really like you to underline this in your Bible. I'd like you to actually look in there, and uh, there's a couple of places I even want you to put a couple of uh, exclamation points when we get to it. But in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, the Bible says this. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. You see, uh, many of you have become Christians and you didn't realize, uh, well, maybe you did, but the the Christian life isn't isn't a playground. You know, when I first got saved, everybody told me, oh, you get saved and everything's gonna just go great, it's gonna be wonderful, it's just uh, the best life ever. Well, it is, I have to admit, it's the best life I've ever imagined. But it's not a playground, in fact, uh, it's a battleground. And if you figure that out, that you're in a warfare, it changes your mentality a little bit. Uh, it, it's, not, it's not a party. Uh, you should make the discovery that the Christian life is not a bed of roses, but that we've been enrolled in an intense struggle. So as we look at this text for this morning's message, I wanna focus particularly on the world or worldliness. Uh, the Bible says very clearly that the, that we are not to love the world, neither the things that are in the world. That's a command. That's not a suggestion. That's a command. Do not love the world, nor the things that are in the world. Now, now what does the Bible mean when it talks about worldliness? What does it mean when we talk about worldly individuals? You know, I, I remember coming to this country, and I would uh, never heard the terminology. Oh, he's had a checkered life. I thought, what, what does that mean? A checkered life. What it meant was that he had a very worldly life. That his life had been very worldly. That he'd had, he'd done a lot in this world. It was a nice way of saying that the guy is a rogue of a man, and he's probably done all kinds of sinful and wrong things. But uh, it was very colorful. I believe that. Worldliness is probably the greatest problem that plagues the church today. Believers who live worldly lives are not effective in life, nor are they effective for the Lord. Worldliness robs us of our spiritual power. And it's a tremendous problem in the lives of believers. I've heard some preachers' terminology or when describing certain believers as being worldly Christians. Uh, But this is a misnomer. I I don't know how you can have a worldly Christian when you think about it. But there was a preacher, and I want to quote him here, at the turn of the century, his name is Billy Sunday. And Billy Sunday used to make fun of the term worldly Christian. And here's what he used to say. He says, uh, to talk about a worldly Christian makes about as much sense as talking about a heavenly devil. I uh, couldn't agree more. A worldly Christian, when you see a person who claims to know Jesus as their Lord and as their Savior, and yet their lifestyle remembers, re- resembles more of the world than it does the lifestyle of heaven or the lifestyle of a believer, then you have reason to question or not whether or not that person has really had an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, whether he's really experienced what it really means to be born again or to be saved. So as we look at this passage of scripture today, I'd like to, first of all, break it down to three things. First of all, there's a word of exhortation. He's exhorting us, and and an exhortation is strong advice. It's a warning. God calls me as a pastor to exhort you, to warn you, to make an appeal to you. And so here we have the writer appealing to us. In verse 15, he's exhorting us. And it begins with the commandment, love not the world. Now, the verb in this verse is in the present tense. So you could really be translated this way. Stop loving the world. Don't go on loving the world. That's a much stronger way of saying it. Stop loving the world. Don't go on loving the world. It's a very personal, first first person tense. It's always our tendency as human beings to love this world. And God says in the scripture that we're not to. He says, stop loving the world. Don't go on loving the world. So that's a decision that we have to make. What does the Bible mean when it says, love not the world? Well, the Greek word here for world is cosmos, and the, 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 the word cosmos is defined by the Greek as an order or an arrangement of things. Uh, by the way, it's interesting to note that, uh, that we get the word cosmetics from that. And that's what women do. They organize and they arrange things. And we're very thankful for that. As men especially, we're very thankful for that. Can I get an amen? But cosmos, as it's used in this verse of scripture, is an arrangement or an order of things in this world that is hostile to God. The order and the arrangements of the cosmos is hostile to God. It's not friendly towards God. It's a system of ideas, it's a system of of activities and people who are in active rebellion against God. The Bible's full of scriptures, it talks about the whole world lies in darkness. The world's system is a broken system. Psalm 2, verses 1 through 4 says this Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointing, saying, Let us break their bands asunder, let us cast away their cords from us. But he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh, and the Lord shall have them in derision. I I love this picture. Because it says that the, the kings of this world, the people of this world, the kings of the, the earth, the, the people in this worldly world system, have actively sought to take the bands of truth, the bands that God gave us, the law of God, and get rid of it so that they could have their own law, so they could be free from God. We see that working out today more than ever. We see society getting rid of anything that looks like God and replacing it with their own rules, their own machinations, and rebelling against God. And, and some of them are even doing it religiously. They're saying, all roads lead to God. We don't need a God. There's many ways that you can get to God, and you get to define that yourself. Unfortunately, that's not the truth. That's against God. It's an anti-God, anti-Christ spirit. And it's only going to increase as the days of evil get work. Uh, can continue to, to, to grow to, and get worse and worse. We talk about the world of sports, or we talk about the world of politics, or the world of work. All those things are steeped in evil. They, they, they have to be redeemed, but for the most part, if you just live in this world, that world of sports is declining. I don't know if you've noticed, but most sports and most sports people have been caught up in a devolving world of politics, a devolving world of, of huge money, uh, almost. A, uh, there, there's almost this entitlement to the sportsmen today. They no longer play for the love of the game. They, they play for the love of money. They, they, they're, they're, they, they're little children that have sometimes their little temper tantrums so that the whole world gets to watch them. It's becoming ugly, in fact. It's not even enjoyable. But, but yet we have people today that are caught up in that world of sport I have men in the church that can name every person on every rugby team, or on every soccer team, but they can't name one verse in the Bible. We have a world of work. And I've watched, even here, I I had a great message early in the church's history. We, We taught about God wanted to prosper and bless you. And God does, God does desire to bless and prosper you, but he wants to do it righteously. But what I'm saying is how many people have been blessed and prospered, started in the spirit, but ended up in the flesh? I've watched many, many people corrupt themselves. And they, oh, they, 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 and they walk around, they, they tell everybody they're Christians, but they did business just like the world. They, in fact, they were worse than the world because they did it under the guise of Christianity and they got involved in the Babylonian system and they, they never stood for righteousness. They just did, they, they, were just, they were twice the sons of hell in the name of Jesus. And they brought, dis, they brought disfavor and they brought shame to the name of Christ and, and even to the church sometimes. Just tap your neighbor and say, I think I know who he's talking about. You see, whether it's work or politics or sports, these things all mean that they revolve around the subject that we're talking about. The Bible talks about the world as a system of things organized in active hostility and active rebellion against God. The Bible talks about the wisdom of this world and the spirit of this world and we're told that the whole world is corrupt, that the whole world lies in darkness. This is not a very good picture of the world but the world is controlled by the God of this world and the God of this world is the devil. It's not Almighty God. Almighty God is not the God of this world. He is the Lord of the earth. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, but the God of the world and the worldly system is the devil. And the Bible tells us and warns us not to love this world, not to love the worldly systems. So moving from a definition, the writer here then gives us a description. And that statement describes for us what worldliness is all about. Uh, Many people want a church, or they want me as a pastor to explain worldly things what they are, or to somehow give a list of things that are worldly, and I I think this is dangerous for a number of reasons. Uh, One of the reasons that it's dangerous is because uh, if I had to describe everything that's worldly from the pulpit, we'd be here all day. There's not enough time to name everything that's worldly. But I think there's a more serious reason. If I did give you my list of worldly things, you probably all wanna argue with me about it. Isn't it amazing how we all wanna defend? Well, I don't think that's, that's not really worldly. We we all have our rationalizations, and and that's what we do. We try to rationalize away what is or what is not worldly to me, to me as a person, what I think. But let me tell you something else that's even more a problem than what I'm speaking about. If I did give you a list of things that I told you would be worldly, Some of you would take that list and not do any of them. You would be holy in the sense that you kept your list. And because you didn't do those things, you'd tell me and you'd tell everybody else that you're in good shape. See, when you get into that kind of a situation, I think you're on your way to becoming a legalistic, pharisaical Christian. Because none of us can be righteous, we understand that. And being a Christian and defining Christianity by what you don't do is a dangerous path. There's more to Christianity, there's more to being a Christian than what you don't do. God's not running around saying, don't do, don't do, don't do. He's saying, become, become like Christ. We take on the attitude of Christ. We take on the nature and the character, the divine nature of God. And and, and what happens is it's an outworking, not a following of rules and laws. Some of the most legalistic, some of the most judgmental, and some of the most unloving people I've ever known to be are people who have their list of things that they didn't do. And they impose that list on everybody else. And they make strong judgments about everybody. And I think we need to be very careful. I want you to understand this this morning. That the world is a system of things that organizes itself in rebellion to God. And when a believer loves this world, It causes you and I to love the Father less and less. That's what worldliness really is. He goes on and he gives a word of explanation. He tries to clear things up. He says, okay. He says, I said, love not the world. Love not the worldliness, the things of this world. And he goes in verse 16 and he continues with this kind of an explanation, a word of explanation. And we have a threefold description of what John says is in the world. He says, it's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He says, that's not of the Father. And he says, if it's not of the Father, it's of the world. So there's basically a threefold pressure that this world exerts upon the believer, upon you and I. The lust of the flesh, that's physical pressure. The lust of the eyes, that's mental pressure, and the pride of life is spiritual pressure. We all have to face that. The lust of the flesh is a sinful desire, it's a passion, which makes it appealing and appeals to our fallen nature. There are certain physical desires that you and I have that are normal, and in themselves there's nothing wrong with them. For example, uh, sexual desire. There's nothing wrong with sexual desire. The Bible makes it very plain that sex is a gift from God. There's nothing wrong with a desire for sex, as long as it's in marriage. But if it becomes a lust of the flesh, it's when you try to fulfill that which is normal, a God-given desire, in an illegitimate, abnormal, or forbidden way. And that's outside of marriage. That's when a man and a woman, or a man and a man, or a woman and a woman, or a man and an it, a thing or an animal begin to do that which is not normal, that which is not, which is considered abnormal. And We live in a very worldly world today. The world is redefining sex and, and, and what sexuality is. It used to be anatomy defined it. And as long as anatomy defines it, and, and anatomy still does have a definition, you have male and female. It's Y and X chromosomes, and, you can, and, and it's been that way for thousands and thousands of years, and even the Bible describes it as man and woman. But today, we've moved from science, hard sciences, to soft sciences. We have too many graduates of liberal arts universities where now we have all kinds of pop psychology, and it's now become psychological or sociological, And and we're making up definitions as we go. We have men running in races against women who are men, but they identify as a woman and they're breaking all kinds of records. Well, of course they're breaking every kind of record. A man competing against a woman is gonna break every record. But we sit here and we think, well, it's it's, it's improper for us to talk like men. No, where are the women? It's time for women to stand up and say, hey, minute, I'm a, I'm a woman, for goodness sake. And I'm not going to compete against an it. And if there's going to be, if, if we're going to have it's, transgenders, men that think they're women and women that think they're men, but they're not, then let them have their transgender races. But the women are going to compete against women. Anyway, I don't know how I got off on that. <laughs> There's also mental pressure. The lust of the eyes. Did you notice the eyes have desires? Did you know your eyes have passions? We use, the term, we use this terminology sometimes. We say, feast your eyes on that. Come and feast your eyes on this. Come and see what we see. And, and, and we see a lot of what we desire comes by means of the eyes. And, and marketing and and. and uh, uh, the, the whole media understands this. In fact, we are bombarded. I, 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 there used to be a law in this country that you couldn't have billboards. Now if you drive down Borrowdale Road, I, I, you can't see anything but billboards. It's getting ridiculous. I mean, and, and, and it's like, no sooner do we think that there's enough billboards than we're putting another one up. I'm saying, I don't even look at them anymore. It's like, you know, there was a, there was a song in the, in, the, in the 60s that said, sign, sign, everywhere, a sign blocking up my scenery, blowing my mind. Do this, don't do that. Can't you read the sign? Uh, now I understand what that guy was saying. I didn't understand it then. Now I understand it because there's sign signs everywhere is a sign today. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And it has nothing to do with anything but tempting us, luring us, seducing us into things that we probably don't need or want, but we're being advertised to death. We're constantly being b- b- bombarded and saturated with what we don't need, or what we think we need, or what we should, that the world wants us to desire. Now we have something called the metaverse. And I think we have to be very careful about the metaverse. This is becoming very, very real. There's people that are going into the metaverse, they're going into a, a space where they're actually buying things that aren't real, but they're real in that space. They're spending hard money for space in the metaverse. I was telling my son, I think you need to get involved in this. I said I, you need to do your art in the metaverse because there's a, there's a, there, if you go online you'll see this thing called the Bored ape. Have you ever seen the board ape? Yeah. So the board ape is a is a is, is some guy that put a, a little image together and he has like 150 of them or 200 of them, and. They sell in the metaverse. You have to go inside the metaverse and, the, and you buy one of these things. Jimmy Kimmel bought one for $300,000. It's a little painting of, an, of a board and it's not even art, it's just, I, but he didn't wanna miss out. I wanna miss out on that. I'm, I don't wanna be in the metaverse, but I told John, hey, I think you could do your lions and, and sell, in the, and I hope you get 300,000. Take a load off my back. But I saw the other day, I was reading about a young boy who got into his metaverse and he, th- when they found him, he was starving to death. He, he'd been in there so long, he, stopped, he hadn't eaten. He was so engrossed in, in this other world that he lost contact with the real world. I'm mean, gonna I tell you something, there's something about worldliness that can become devastating. Whether it be otherworldly or even in this world. How many of you remember the little song we used to sing as children? Be Be careful little eyes what you see. Remember that song? My mom taught me. She says, be careful little eyes what you see, be careful little ears what you hear, be careful little mouth what you say. The third thing he says is a word of exclamation. And, and an exclamation is something that's said suddenly. I can just hear the suddenness in his voice. I can see the urgency when he's talking about this. In verse 17, John gives us this word of exclamation. It's as if he is putting exclamation points in this verse. There's two basic things that he claims or exclaims when he, when he exalts, in this, and exalts in this verse. In verse 17, he says, and the world passes away and the lust thereof. The world passes away in the lust thereof. I want you to underline that verse in your Bible. Just underline that, put, put exclamation points on either side of it. And, 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 and I, because I think it's important you understand that the world passes away and the lust thereof. And the tense of the verb here is very, very important. It's the uh, present tense. What he's really saying is that the world is right now in the process of passing away. The world is on its way out. It's fading. The glory of this world is fading. The things of this earth are fading. It's not getting better. It's getting worse. It's on its way out. I've heard I've heard certain people use terminology, and and, and you know I've heard it in this country a lot. It says sure is the world. Sure is the they're they're trying to add emphasis to something they're saying. It's says sure is the world, and uh, I got news for you. That's not very sure. This world is not very sure, and. All of us that live in Zimbabwe know that it's not very sure. Somebody can wake up tomorrow morning and say, hey, listen, the dollar is free market today. Yesterday it was a a crime to trade dollars. Now, willing buyer, willing seller. Well, how did we get to there? We've been down this road a few times. But see, the, the, the world is confused. The world is godless. The world is not seeking God. It's, not, it's the Babylonian system, and it's broken. You have to understand it's passing away. It's fading. It's failing. The world's failing. Even the, the top economists are talking about a global reset of currencies, a global reset of the whole world, a global, we have to, ch- and, and they're looking at some giant leap to change us all, to change everything, and we're going to do away with everything we have to have something that we don't even know what, if it exists or not whatever you want to call it, a Green New Deal, a, a, a global reset. Klaus Schwab tells us, hey, you're not going to own anything, but you're going to be happy. I don't think so. But that, that, that's the craziness of this world. This system is failing. It's falling. This world's passing away. You see, when you attach your life to this world, you've attached your life to something that's passing away. John is saying that none of the things of this world can give you permanent satisfaction. The world always gives you its best first, and then it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. The pleasures of this world are temporary pleasures, but they're always operating in a law of diminishing returns. This world passes away and the lust thereof. That's why a man is a fool to drive his stake and the stake of his life into this world. and Say, this is where I'm gonna make my stand. But there's another exclamation point in that verse, verse 17. And it says, He that doeth the will of God abideth into the ages. Man, I love that. He that doeth the will of God abideth into the ages. If we want to get onto to something that'll last, something that'll stick, something that'll have staying power, then we need to make up our mind to not love this world, but to get involved in the things of the Heavenly Father. Not involved in the world, but in the things of God. The things that are eternal. The Bible says, look to those things that are heavenly, not earthly. The early church fathers had to deal with this kind of idea of the world creeping into the church and creeping into the Christians' lives. And, and this battle has raged throughout the whole life of the church. This morning I, wanna, I want you to listen to some of the warnings of the fathers of the faith that have gone before us. I want you to understand that we are in a warfare, both individually and as a church, to secure ourselves from the pressures of worldliness. One of the ways that worldliness enters the church is by allowing ourselves to become worldly. When we have worldliness creeping into the church, we weaken the church, and we we weaken the message of Christ to the world. Matthew Henry said this. He says, the heart of man is narrow and cannot contain both loves. The world draws down the heart from God. And so the more the love of the world prevails, the more the love of God dwindles and decays. The spirit of God in true Christians is opposed to the spirit of the world. That's pretty powerful. Jude chapter three, or verses three and four says this. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you because and to exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was delivered to the saints. For there are certain men, crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Ungodly men, turning the grace of our Lord into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Here, here, here's James. He's saying, look, there, there, there are men that are creeping into the fabric of the church. False prophets, false teachers. He says, and they were ordained for this. He says, you must contend for the faith. You're in a battle. You have to fight to keep your faith. You're in a warfare. Matthew 13, verse 25 says, but while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. Did you know that there's tares amongst the wheat? Did you know that even in this room today, there are many that are not saved? They come to church, but they're really not saved. They're they're tares amongst the wheat. We don't know, they they grow up amongst us. You you don't know. They look saved, they act saved, they talk saved, they they talk like they're Christians, but in, in their hearts, in their lives, in their livelihoods, they're worldly. They're not producing the fruit of righteousness, they're producing another fruit. When Jesus taught, he said, produce fruits of righteousness, fruits of repentance unto righteousness. The Christian who, or the person who says they're a Christian and, and, and is still sinning and hasn't turned from their ways, you have to question whether they are truly born again. Ephesians 4, verse 14, it says that, we henceforth no be, more, be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and the cutting craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Paul's warning us, he says, listen, be careful. There are men that are, they're, they're, they're slimy guys. There's guys that are out there that are full of slight. They, they used, and that, that word is kind of using a trickery. They're using, uh, what is it when you use sleight of hand, you use uh, uh, illusions, they use illusions. They're, they're illusionary and they, they're, they're cunning in their craftiness and they're, they're seducing people. They're seducing it with false signs, false wonders, false prophecies, false teachings. There's a church here in town that basically has said this. They said, listen, uh, we don't believe the Bible anymore. You don't need a Bible. You just need a prophet. Well, I tell you what, you're seduced if, you ha- if you're following a prophet. The Bible tells us that though we or an angel come to you and preach any other gospel than that which is preached, we have a much more sure word of prophecy, which is the word of God. We have to base ourselves and our lives on something besides the whims of a man, the whims of a so-called prophet. And every prophet must be subject to something, and they must be subject to the Word of God. 2 Peter 2, verses 1 and 2, in the King James Bible says But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privately shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways by reason of whom the way of the truth will be evil spoken of. Well, I'll tell you what. You know, Zimbabwe has this boast that we're, I've heard up to 85% Christian. I'm gonna tell you something, that's the biggest load of rubbish. We are not 85% Christian. I would venture to say we're probably not even 20% Christian. The way we behave, most people that call themselves Christians aren't Christians because they have no bearing on the society. Their lives don't count. They're worldly. They're just as worldly as the world. And the scripture says that the way of the truth is being evil spoken of because of the corruption, the pernicious ways that have come into the church. It's important to notice that the enemy uses people He uses people to work as decoys and he places decoys into settings, in the setting of a believer and then he uses their leavening influence to influence and corrupt the church. We have people here that are, even in our church, that they call themselves Christians but they they live terrible lives. They live corrupt lives and 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 they influence young innocent people. Oh, it's okay, I'm a Christian, God doesn't care. God does care. You're the one that should care Listen to the cries on behalf of the church. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, great preacher, says this. I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. Dr. Bob Jones Sr. said this. When the church affects the world, you have revival. When the world affects the church, you have apostasy. G. Campbell Morgan said this, he says, when amusement is necessary to get people to listen to the gospel, there will be failure. This is not the method of Christ. To form an organization and provide all kinds of entertainment for young people in order that they may come to Bible classes is foredoomed to failure. A.W. Tozer, I have a few quotes from him. I love this guy. He says, modern Christians hope to save the world by being like it, but it'll never work. The church's power over the world springs out of her unlikeness to it, never from her integration into it. He says, one compromise here, another there, and soon enough, the so-called Christian and the man of the world look exactly the same. A whole new generation of Christians has come up believing that it is possible to accept Christ without forsaking the world. God forbid that in this church we allow that message to go out, that you can accept Christ and still live in a sinful and worldly way. That is not true. If you've accepted Christ, you must forsake this world and worldliness. There's a glorified man on the right hand of majesty in heaven, faithfully representing us there. We are left for a season among men. Let us faithfully represent him here. He goes on to say this, the Holy Spirit never enters a man and then lets him live like the world. You can be sure of that. He goes on and says, a church fed on excitement is no New Testament church at all. The desire for surface stimulation is a sure mark of the fallen nature, the very thing that Christ died to deliver us from. You know, it's always amazing to me. When the world begins to creep into the church, we start looking like the world. We have to be very careful there. We're distinct from the world. And if I have to be worldly to win The world, then we've already failed. He goes on and says one more thing. He says we cannot afford to let down our Christian standards just to hold the interest of people who want to go to hell and still belong to the church. I don't understand why somebody would live their life like they're going to go to hell and then still want to come to church. Many people have heard the cliche, the end justifies the means. But the problem with this philosophy is that the means determine the end. If the goal is to get the whole world to Christ, then by what means do we accomplish this goal? Do we use the means of gospel preaching and going and sending missionaries and ourselves into the world to reach the world? Do we use the means of gospel literature, media to preach the gospel? Or do we find out what the world likes and decide to imitate that in order to reach them for Christ? Do we use the flesh in order to make people spiritual? How do you reach a man who loves sin? Do you sin to reach him? How do you reach a drunkard? Do you become a drunk with him? How do you reach the harlot? Do you commit adultery with her to reach her? How do you reach a violent criminal? Do you become a violent criminal to reach him? How do you teach a man that likes sex, drugs, and rock and roll? Do you use sex, drugs, and rock and roll to reach him? Did the rescuers of the people from the Titanic that were sinking? Jump into the icy cold water with the victims so that they could share some common ground before pulling them out of their icy demise? Or did they stay in their rescue boat so that they could do their work? When Christians or the church decides to use the world's means to reach the world, it heads down a path from which there's often no return. At the end of this path, we find that the church did not convert the world but rather the world has converted the church. The rescue workers are diving into the icy waters of the North Atlantic, and nobody is left in the the lifeboats. How can we possibly present and represent our holy God when we are using unholy means? Isaiah 6 and verse 3. We hear the prophet Isaiah crying out, we hear God crying out, and, 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 and we hear the angels, and one cried to another, said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And if you know the story of, 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 of this prophet, this is when he sees God high and lifted up, and his train fills the temple, his glory is in the temple, and, and, and his first cry is, I'm a man of unclean lips, I live amongst the people of unclean lips, I'm a sinner, woe is me, I'm undone. Then he overhears a conversation here in heaven, whom can we send? God's talking to himself. He's talking to the, the triune God. He says, Whom can we send to go on our behalf? And, and, he, and he has the audacity to speak, and he says, Lord, send me. Lord, send me. In. And, and what does God do? God consecrates him. God sanctifies him. God sends a, a, an angel with a coal from the, the temple. that says, he cleanses his mouth, cleanses his heart, and he becomes a prophet of God. Come out from amongst them. Don't be part of that world. You see, you have to understand something. There are satanic forces at work today And they're meant to blur the line between holy and unholy, clean and unclean, acceptable and unacceptable. These lines result in the world becoming churchy and the church becoming worldly. When the church becomes like the world, like the lost world that they're trying to save or to reach, they lose all credibility and then men die in their sin. Because there's no witness to the life-changing power of the gospel of Christ. When this happens, the God of this world and the goal of Satan is accomplished. The satanic deception is simply this. Blur the line between lost and saved. So the lost think that they're saved. Many lost people think they're saved. They think, well, you know, I walked to the altar. I I guess I'm saved. that you're not saved. Walking to this altar doesn't save you. A transformed life, the life of Christ in you, saves you. This satanic deception is gonna be the responsibility and responsive, uh, be, uh, to be responsible for the damnation of millions of sinner saints. That's what I call them, sinner saints at the great white throne judgment. You can't be half saved and half lost. Many are lost. But they've been blinded by their own religiosity to know the difference. They don't know any better. I believe that the reason that Zimbabwe's in such bad shape morally is because the church is in such bad shape spiritually. The reason that the church is in such bad shape spiritually is because the church has become so worldly And the reason that the church has become worldly can be attributed to many, many things. But for sure we are seeing the creep of the world into the fabric of the church of Jesus Christ. Whenever we try to merge the secular and the sacred, we prove that there is nothing that is sacred. My son, Jonathan, sent me this verse this morning. He didn't know what I was preaching on, but he sent me this verse in Jeremiah 15. He says, your words, verses 16 through 21. He says, your words were found and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and gladness of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Jehovah, the God of hosts. I did not sit in the circle of mockers nor rejoice. I sat alone because of your hand. For you have filled me with indignation. Why has my pain been without end? And why is my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? You surely are to me like a deceitful brook, waters that cannot be trusted. Therefore, so says Jehovah, if you turn back, then I will bring you again. You shall stand before me. And if you take the precious from the worthless, you shall be as my mouth. Let them turn back to you, but do not return to them. And I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze and they shall fight against you and they shall not overcome you for I am with you to save you and to deliver you says Jehovah and I will deliver you out of the hand of the wicked and I will redeem you out of the hand of the evil ones. Man, I read that and my spirit leapt on the inside of me. There is a God who will work with somebody who separates the precious from the vile. Who says, I'm gonna take what's good and I'm gonna get rid of this worldliness. I'm gonna live for God. You see, there's a merger mentality, and this merger mentality has bled into the church, into all areas, in fact, of the Christian world. We have a generation that takes anything, no matter how immoral, and then we put the word Christian on it. We put this little bumper sticker on it, and we declare it's sacred. We have Christian beer, Christian nightclubs, pro athletes that are so-called Christians, Christian rock, Christian rap, Christian yoga. We've lost the division. We cannot tell where the church begins and where the world ends. The goal of the Great Commission was to bring a holy bride of Christ out of the world. But now we have so much world in the church that being a Christian has almost become meaningless. At some point, someone needs to draw a line that says, this is Christianity, this is not. We have people that I call sinner saints. They can take almost anything imaginable. Swimming, horseback riding, rock and roll, uh, rock music, tap music, rap music, diets, workouts, routines, charities, dance routines, and they can add the word Christian to it And then they say whatever they're doing is acceptable to the Lord. I was in America and I I saw an ad for Christian pole dancing. (laughs) Christian yoga, how can you have Christian yoga? Yoga is an Eastern religion that opens yourself up to the chakras and the this and the that, and and, and now you just put the name Christian on it. There's no such thing as Christian yoga. It's either yoga or it's Christian. Yoga is a religion, it's part of a religion. Anyway, I belabor the point too much. Second Corinthians says this. Chapter 6. six, second Corinthians six verses 14 through 18. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship does righteousness have with lawlessness? And what partnership does light have with darkness? And what agreement does Christ have with Belial? Or what part does the believer have with an unbeliever? And what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from amongst them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch the unclean thing, And I will receive you and I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and my daughters, says the Lord God Almighty. Come out from amongst them, he says. Be separated. You see, we can't have fellowship with the Lord and with the world at the same time. To be truly right with God will always make you wrong with the world. We are married to Christ and therefore we should not be flirting with another woman. If you're a married man... You don't flirt with another woman. The Babylonian system of this world is another woman. It's called the great harlot for a reason. This world's system is broken, it's worldly. You either love one or the other, but you can't love both. I know this is hard to hear, and I know that we live in this world, and I know that God says we're not of this world, but the Bible also says that pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the orphans and to visit the widows in their afflictions and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. James one twenty-seven. Keep yourself unspotted from the world. 1 Peter 1, verses 14 through 16. Now don't go to sleep because I'm reading the Bible. This can set you free. The word of God is what sets you free. Not my good preaching, not my eloquent words, not my my persuasive arguments, but the word of God. How does a young man keep his way pure? He hides the word of God in his heart. 1 Peter 1 verses 14 and 16 says, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but according to the Holy One who has called you, you also become holy in all conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. 1 Corinthians 5, verses nine through 13 says, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate intimately with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or the extortioners, or with the idolatries, for then you must go out of the world. What he's saying is, the world's full of that. The world's full of fornication. It's full of idolatry. It's full of wickedness. He says, you can't escape it. He says, but don't fellowship with it. I've written you not to associate intimately if any man called a brother and is either a fornicator or a covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner. With such a one, do not eat. For what is it for me to judge those that are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But God judges those who are outside. Therefore put out from you the evil one. I think it's time that we put out some people from the church. We have we have we have people that are recurrent in their idolatry, recurrent in their adultery, recurrent in their sinfulness. No repentance. House wreckers. Have nothing to do with them. It's time for you to blow the whistle on them. Say, excuse me. You can't call yourself a Christian to keep doing that. You need to repent. Romans 12, verses one and two, says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, pleasing to God. This is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Don't be conformed to this world be transformed by the renewing of your mind in order that you may prove what is the good and pleasing and perfect will of God. I said this earlier, Psalm 119 verse nine. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to the word. You know why I read that and why it's so live in me? It was the daily reading this morning. If you read your daily reading, you're gonna get something every day. Here's another one out of the daily reading. In the Amplified Bible, it says in Luke 13, 22. Jesus journeyed on through cities and villages, teaching and making his way toward Jerusalem. And someone asked him, Lord, will only a few people be saved from the penalties of the last judgment? Will only a few people be saved from the penalties of the last judgment? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. Force aside unbelief and the attraction of sin. For many, I tell you, will try to enter by their own works and will not be able. Once they heard, once once the head of the house gets up and closes the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door again and again, saying, Lord, open to us. He will answer you and say, I do not know where you come from, for you're not of my household. Then you will begin to say, we ate and we drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. And he will say to you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place there will be weeping and sorrow and pain and grinding of teeth in distress and anger. See, I think that we have a very serious warfare on our hands. Today, it's not easy to be a pastor and bring this kind of a message. Boy, I'll tell you what, if we don't bring this message, if I don't sound the alarm, there are some of you that are not going to be in heaven. You're not going to make it. The day of compromise is over. The day of playing church is over. And there's a new wave coming. And I don't want any of you to miss it. There's something that God desires to do in your heart and in my heart and in my life. And it may cost us something. It may cost us one of our idols or all of our idols. It'll definitely cost you your worldliness. It's time to consecrate our lives. Now, the Bible is very clear. The Bible says, how do we overcome this? It says, pray one another. The, the Bible says this. It says, confess your faults to each other. When's the last time you confessed your faults to somebody? didn't say confession is false to a priest or a pastor, to one another. He says when you do that, go down and pray for each other that you might be forgiven, that you might repent. See, repentance is acknowledging that, hey, you know what? I see worldliness creeping into my life. I have allowed worldliness in my life. I want to be accountable, not just to myself, but I'm a part of a church. See, and the church is God's idea. And we don't live in a bubble all by ourselves. We live with other people. And every time one of you does evil, you bring a reproach upon me, upon all of us. But I can't tell you how bad the name of celebration is sometimes. Because everybody's a member of celebration when they're looking for a blessing. Oh yeah, I go, yeah. I, no, I'm a Christian, yes, I'm a Christian. Meanwhile, you're the thief. You're a liar, and you're just like that guy. You're just tacking whatever looks Christian on so you can get ahead in life instead of being genuine, being real. That's okay. God gave me a prophecy about this church. He said it would be a mustard seed church. It's the smallest of all seeds, grows into the largest of all trees, and in it lodge the fowl of the air. Do you know what the fowl they are? Demons, demonically inspired people come to this church. No, there's, there's people right here. They're wizards. There's, there, there, there are. There's, there's people here. They're, 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 you're their prey. You are their prey. They're wicked men that come to the church. Wicked women. They prey on the people of this church. They're sent here by the devil. Some of you just aren't smart enough to know that. You don't know you're in a warfare. You just come to church. You think, oh, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. No, you're in a fight for your life every single day of your life. This is not for the faint of heart. So I'm gonna ask you all to stand, just wherever you're at, just stand. We're not having an altar call today. Now, if you need the altar, if you need to come and pray with somebody, that's fine, there'll be pastors here. But we're gonna pray for each other. I want you to turn to somebody. I want you to turn to two or three people and pray for them. Just take time and pray for them. But before you do that, let me give you one quick announcement. This week, I think there's something else you can do. I think it's time to come back to the Lord. And this week, I prophesied this. I said a strategic day is so important that someone has to take responsibility to position and secure the gates of that day. A strong day is a day of intercession. It's a prophetic day, a day to prepare for and deal with crisis. It's a day to seek God. Strong days are the days that are specifically assigned to accomplish specific purposes. This coming Friday, the 15th of April, is such a strong day. It will mark the beginning of Passover, and it will also mark the beginning of our countdown, 40 Days to Action 2022. The theme of this prayer day that we're setting aside on the 15th here in the auditorium is Passover into the promise. The theme of our conference this year is entering the promised land, or entering the promise. Our venue will be right here in the auditorium. There will be no online option And it'll be from six until nine i'm going to ask you to be here i'm going to ask you to come and pray i'm going to ask you to consecrate your life i'm going to ask you to make that a holy day a strong day i'm asking you to come and say listen i'm going to shed my flesh and i'm going to go into the realm of the spirit i'm going to touch god i'm going to believe that god will touch us i believe that god will begin to ignite us and that 40 days from now there'll be something very supernatural that begins to happen god is on the move something is about to happen we're moving into a promise." We're moving into promised land. And I I think that if you're not careful, you'll miss it. I don't want you to miss it. So it's time to get serious. There are people here today that have never prayed for somebody else. You're always looking for somebody to pray for you. Today, you're going to pray for somebody else. Prayer is simply asking on their behalf. Some of you have never confessed to anybody else that, hey, you have a weakness, a fault, that you're slipping, that you have a need. Today's the day. Turn to somebody and say, pray for me. Pray. I, I feel like I'm slipping into worldliness. I, I have a problem with a habit. I have a problem with a sin. I have a problem with, maybe you can't say it. Maybe you just say, would you just pray for me? Pray for one another. The Bible says, pray for each other that you might be healed. Pray for one another that you might be healed. It's time for us to grow up. It's time for us to begin to lead people out of darkness and into light. There's a world out there that's dying. This city is full of false prophets leading people into hell by the Thousands, they're going to hell. They're going to hell. They're not not—they're not having an encounter with Christ. They're having an encounter with falsehood. And they're being titillated with false teaching. Titillated with false miracles and, and, and lying signs and lying wonders that draw attention to man and not to God. You're there. You're there to deliver them. You're there to snatch them from hell. Snatch them into eternity. Start praying for each other right now. We're going to take time and pray. Pray. Pray for you. Find somebody. Find two or three people. Find them. Turn to them. See, I've never prayed, but I'm going to pray right now. I don't know how to pray, but I'm going to pray right now. Come on. Pray. Pray. Pray like your life depends on it, because it does. Thanks for listening. For more teachings and videos, visit celebrationmen.org.